Greetings and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. It's great to be back behind the microphone once again, talking all things judo. And let me tell you, I got a lot of judo to talk about today. It will not surprise me if this episode gets close to two hours. Now, I'm going to do my best to keep it uh, much shorter than that, but believe me, I've got a lot to cover. So to kick things off on the episode, I would like to wish everybody listening a happy belated World Judo Day. And I would also like to wish a happy belated birthday to one Jimmy Pedro, who had turned 50, 50 years old on October 30th. And on his 50th birthday, I got a notification from judoinside.com. And like I said before, I'll tell you again. If you're not reading judoinside.com, what the hell's the matter with you? So this this uh, notification that I got from judoinside.com was specific to an interview done by Un Yo of uh, Judo Crazy. And Un was interviewing Jimmy Pedro. And Jimmy Pedro announced on his birthday, and, and yeah, this is probably one of those times where a breaking news alert is uh, warranted. The start of an American judo system, and no, this is not the American judo development model. This is a new system put together by Jimmy Pedro and Travis Stevens, and he announced it on his birthday, like I just said. And Unyod uh, conducted the interview. Now, I'm going to just cover some of the highlights of this interview. It's a very lengthy interview, and I highly suggest that you go to judoinside.com if you want to read the interview in its entirety. But but let me start with this. Uh, um. The first question asked is, the website is called American Judo System, but the web address is usajudo.com. Can you explain why? Uh, Jimmy responds, the usajudo.com URL was available for sale and we made a bid for it because we thought it's a valuable web address to have and we decided to use it for American Judo System. USA Judo, the governing body, does not own that URL and has nothing to do with our website. (laughs) That is, that's rich to me. I, I, that's that I find very funny. This, this this reminds me of the guy out in Washington D.C. that pretty much bought up every variation of of the uh, the Washington Redskins and Washington Generals and all variations that that Washington football team could possibly use for a for a website address. The guy bought it up basically to hold it ransom, and I'm sure people, oh man. I'm sure people at USA Judo are not very pleased about that. But hey, I mean, fair's fair, right? It's a business decision. They and and Jimmy Jimmy Pedro is a businessman and um kudos to him. He was paying attention and and uh jumped on that URL. I don't know if it was a bidding war, but truth be told, if had I thought of it, I would have made a bid for the site and then hold it for ransom. I'm kidding. I would not do that. Now I gotta believe that USA Judo could probably legally uh, claim that name in in a court of law, but you know what? Even if they can, I'm not so sure if they should because, well, for starters, you know Jimmy Pedro may have deeper pockets than USA Judo, and and how would USA Judo members feel if their uh, contributions? And membership dues was being paid to fight Jimmy Pedro, somebody who is, by and large, beloved by the judo community in the United States. And if not beloved, certainly well-respected. 
and I simply cannot see too many people willingly uh, financially supporting a uh, a legal battle with Jimmy Pedro. I, I just don't see that. And it, and it's really brilliant because when people think about USA Judo, they're going to the, the people that don't know the actual website address, they're going to type usajudo.com. That's what people are going to do. And the first thing they're going to see is Jimmy Pedro's uh, handsome face and who knows? But all I'm saying is that the very first thing that people are going to see and think about is Jimmy Pedro when it comes to judo. And that's smart. I, I think that's brilliant. So the second question is, what's the main reason you guys decided to create the American judo system? Jimmy Pedro says, over the years, a lot of people have wondered how we managed to have the kind of success we have had in international competitions, given that there are fewer than 10,000 active judoka in the U.S. I wonder where he got that number. I've always thought it was more like... Uh, Closer to thirty-five thousand or so, thirty to thirty-five thousand. Continuing on, he says, and they are dispersed all over the place. People don't train together, and a lack of training partners is a persistent problem. So, how do we do it? What's our secret sauce? We decided the best way to show how we did it would be through the medium of video on our website. Judo Inside asks, uh, will it mainly be instructional videos and? Jimmy responds, there will be that, but the, it, but we won't be teaching just techniques. We'll also teach how techniques should be taught. We will be teaching a system. We believe strongly in gripping, in sequential newaza, in drilling, and in mental toughness. We have a system that works. Uh, AJS, American Judo System, will be the platform to share this with the world. I, I think that's great, and I think it's much needed. I also think that this is the direction that the American Judo Development Model wants to go. But it would appear that Jimmy uh, has beaten them to the punch in terms of having something more substantial right now. Let's see, continuing on, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Uh, one of the questions here, uh, when you talk about a system, what are you referring to actually? And Jimmy responds, when it comes to the was, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I scratched that, I jumped, uh, I jumped around too much. It said, I learned a lot from my dad who is, has a somewhat militaristic approach to judo. He believes in discipline and hard work, but above all, he believes in a system. At Pedro's Judo Center, we have a gripping system, which is basically a systematic way to put your hands in your opponent so that you always have the advantage. By controlling the grips, you are able to nullify your opponent's strength and, increases, and increase your chances of winning. Now, here's something really interesting. Um, judo Inside asks, uh, what is your short, medium, and long-term aspirations for uh, AJS? Uh, Jimmy responds, one of the flaws of judo in America is that none of the coaches are on the same page. A lot of the athletes who make it to the national stage don't actually have good fundamentals. So our short-term goal is to not only teach athletes, but to also teach coaches how to teach judo in a systematic way. And, and boy, you know, just speaking for myself, I, I could use something like that. I mean, sure, I learned everything I know from, from my main judo instructor and all the, all the sense that I've had uh, before him and after him, but... I think an organized, systematic approach is missing from the so-called J organizations. Now, let me tell you, I would like to add that Steve Scott is somebody that does have a coaching program, and it's very good, and they do go into details, not only just about coaching techniques and coaching athletes and training, but also on, on how to run a club. I mean, it's a very comprehensive way to develop as a judo coach and a business owner. So there is that, and that's been around for a while, and that should not be discounted. And with that being said, continuing on with what uh, Jimmy was saying, in the medium term, we want to help people 
to teach people how to run better JoJo's. Oh, see, there you go. Just like that. I mean, Steve Scott does something similar. Since I was two years old, I've been around a JoJo. And since 1996, I've been running a JoJo dojo. We want to help train coaches around the world on how to run strong clubs and implement a system that allows them to get the most out of their athletes. Our long, long-term goal is all-encompassing. We want to offer judokas everywhere, everything they need from white belt all the way up to Olympic level. We want to give judokas, especially those in remote places, access to the best information and best instructors that they otherwise would not have access to. Initially, the instructors will be Travis and myself, but eventually we want to bring on other top instructors. In short, we want to be an everything judo site. And I think that's fantastic. Now, continuing on further down the, the interview, um, Judo Inside asks, it's interesting that you are not actually involved in USA Judo and you are not the coach of the U.S. Judo team given your success as a competitor and coach. Can you talk a bit about that? And let's see, Jimmy responds, something a lot of people don't realize is that there is no such thing as a paid head coach in the position in the USA. There's no budget for it. For eight years between 2009 and 2016, I was essentially a volunteer head coach. I had worked with a group of young players from 2004 to 2009. This includes players like Ronda Rousey, Kayla Harrison, Travis Stevens, Nick Del Popolo, Gary St. Ledger. And I had made a commitment to them, so I wanted to see it through. Some of them moved up to my dojo and USA Judo gave us a stipend, but it was not a salary to feed a family on. After Rio 2016... I told the new executive director of USA Judo that if they really wanted to keep the success going, they needed to find the budget for the national coaching staff, which includes a head coach, a head junior coach, and a head cadet coach. I told them I couldn't afford to be a volunteer anymore. Well, they didn't find the money. It's unfortunate, but I owed it to my family and to myself to no longer do this as a hobby. Now, if you look at their program, there's nothing cohesive about it, nothing centralized, and surprisingly, they're not getting any results. Now, let me be clear, that's Jimmy talking, not me. So I, I don't want to get any hate mail or anything like that. Feel free to reach Jimmy at uh, jimmypedro at usajudo.com. I'm kidding, though that's probably going to be his email address. <laughs> okay, <laughs> moving on. Now, I had once heard that Jimmy uh, stated that his requirements for being the USA Judo head coach was to be paid uh, $250,000 a year. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't think USA Judo has the kind of operating budget to be able to pay a hefty salary salary like that. Maybe maybe that $250,000 number was for not only for himself, but for a juniors coach and strength and conditioning coaches and things like that. It's my understanding, I, I, I know USA Judo has put out their budgets um, in, in years past. I haven't looked at the numbers for quite a while, but they I think their operating budget is, is like a million dollars. So to invest 250000 if that was even a true story, that's a hefty chunk of change. And, you know, assuming that is their operating budget, budget I still don't know how you do the most important thing here, which is supporting the athletes if such a large chunk of money is being dedicated to coaches. And, you know, I get Jimmy's point that, you know, he, he you can't volunteer in judo and expect to put in that kind of time and energy and resources and, and not get paid anything. And that is unfair to a family. And I'm sure many coaches out there have made that sacrifice. But for Jimmy, he decided that it's not a sacrifice he's willing to make. And I can respect that. And perhaps that kind of number is what is typical from other successful countries like Japan, Brazil, uh, France, and Russia. 
And the last question I'll cover here, uh, Judo Inside asks, will the U.S. produce another Jimmy Pedro, Kayla Harrison, or Travis Stevens anytime in the foreseeable future? Jimmy responds, uh, without a professional coaching staff, the answer is no. Could there be some amazing talent out there who is based in Japan and is able to represent the USA in Judo? Possibly. But short of that, it won't happen. We just don't have a system in this country to develop a world-class Judo athlete. Uh, world judo is too mature and professional for a recreational team to have success on the IGF circuit. So no, it won't happen unless something drastically changes within USA judo. And and again, I agree with that, especially in light of the interviews that I just had with Ajax Tadehara. I, I I think when you look when you listen to Ajax's story and contrast that with what I just read here in this interview. I, I, I it's hard to argue that that Jimmy's wrong here. Now I wanna make sure I wanna be perfectly clear on something that I'm not I'm not bashing USA Judo. I, I'm I, I really have no interest in doing that. That's not my deal. I some sometimes it sounds like I talk negative, but I'm just talking openly and I'm I just talk honestly here. And I think if you've listened to every episode that I've done, um, I've probably I've talked a, I've talked up a, a USA Judo quite a bit in in a positive light, and sometimes I've I've brought up some of the you know not so positive things. But unfortunately for me, most people tend to remember the negative things, and that's that's just that's expected. It doesn't bother me one bit. Anyway, but I want to take a moment to cover two positive stories regarding USA Judo, and I think it's important that everybody hears about this. Because a membership should know. So back on October 17th, USA Judo sent a letter to all or an email to all club uh, coaches uh, stating, We understand 2020 has been an unprecedented year and many of you have not had your clubs open since uh, the March time frame. To help alleviate some costs to your club during this time, USA Judo is waiving the annual club fee of $100 for those of you that were current USA Judo clubs in 2020. If you have already renewed your club for 2021, we will refund those fees. Your current club membership will lapse on December 31st, 2020. For 2021 USA Judo club membership, please submit the attached 2021 club application form. Please be sure that all your certifications and individual membership are current. If not, your club will remain pending until we receive your updated certifications. Now, I think that's tremendous. And in my opinion really goes above and beyond that this is certainly something unexpected i didn't expect to see uh usa judo do this and quite frankly in my opinion i don't think they needed to but that's what makes this so special because i i think that's a really great gesture to all club members and and the thing is you know when it comes to things like this the perception is just as important as the reality. And and this certainly improves the perception that maybe some people uh, would have out there about USA Judo. Not that it's negative. It's just the more positive attention that you can get, the better. And I I think this is great. So so good job, Keith Bryant and and everybody at USA Judo, which by the way, I'd like to say that for, for all of the people out there that may not know. Now, I don't know Keith Bryant personally, but I know a bunch of people that know Keith Bryant personally, and everybody has positive things to say about Keith. And, and I've been told positive things on several occasions, in, including uh, 
Uh, most recently, I was talking to a friend of mine, and 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 he was very upbeat and positive about the things that he does and and the things that he has to deal with, being the CEO of USA Judo and some of the challenges in having to work with the other judo uh, f- uh, federations in this country. And you know, a positive thing that I think uh, is a situation here with Keith is that he's not a judo guy, and and I think. To, it's important to have a leader that's not a judo guy. I, I think that's a good thing. I think some people out there may think that's a bad thing and that you got to keep it within within the family of sorts. But being a good judo instu- instructor or a great sensei or a great coach or being great at running tournaments or being being great at dojo management, that doesn't mean that you're going to be great at being a leader of an organization like USA Judo or anything like that. Because I think a person in that kind of position can look at the problems that, in this in this case, USA Judo, uh, that, that kind of person can look at the problems that they face and 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 see that from w- without any bias uh, or, or strong leanings on how they think Judo should be because of traditions handed down from their sensei or whatever. No, he's a business guy. And I think it's a good thing to have just a strict business guy as a leader. I don't know. That's just me. I don't think the the CEO of USA Judo needs to be a black belt in Judo at all. I don't believe that for one second. But again, that's just my opinion. Now, with the other story with USA Judo, I'm not going to get to that just yet because I want to get right to the the uh, Grand Slam in Budapest, Hungary. They, they, they initially called this thing the... The Budapest Grand Slam or the Grand Slam Budapest, but then they—I noticed that without much fanfare, they changed the official name to to Grand Slam Hungary, which is interesting to me because it makes me wonder if that name change has anything to do with the fact that Budapest is a city dealing with a significant spike in COVID-related cases. So, was that name changed because they didn't want—they wanted to avoid the negative press of holding a international uh, sports tournament in a city with rapid, you know, rapidly raising uh, cases of COVID. I don't know. So before I get into the specific results of the Grand Slam in Hungary, I feel the need to talk about some of the COVID-related issues surrounding this tournament. And I'm probably going to go on a little bit of a rant here uh, when it comes to COVID. Not much of a rant, just a little bit, just a tiny one. What can I say? But there's been a lot of stories that have happened uh, with uh, COVID and with this tournament. And I'm going to start right back again with USA Judo and uh, L.A. Smith. Now, L.A. Smith put out an interesting post on his Facebook page. And for those that don't know, he is a representative of Team USA. And this was taken a, this, this was posted a few days ago. So by the time you hear this, this is going to be relatively old news. But here it goes. L.A. writes, uh, hey, everyone, I'm doing okay. I was supposed to compete today, but I supposedly tested positive for COVID-19 on October 22nd. The reason I say supposed is that I took a COVID test on October 12th and again on Sunday the 18th. No positives nor any antibodies. Finally, I took my last test on Tuesday, October 20th, boarded a plane for Budapest on Wednesday the 21st, and arrived in Hungary on Thursday the 22nd and tested positive. On Friday, I was notified that I just tested positive Uh but was not allowed to retest to check for a false positive and has been quarantined since October 22nd. I have none of the symptoms, 
No high temperature, no dry cough, no sore throat, no sudden onset of shortness of breath, no vomiting or diarrhea, fatigue or muscle pain. The stink of it is that I have kept up training in my room and they have not even attempted to retest me or check on me and continue to deny me a retest with fire which violates all of their own protocols that the IJF agreed in the packet entry or in the packet that they sent to all countries this tournament is nothing more than a money grab for Budapest what really is so outrageous the Hungarian Judo Federation is moving me to a government hotel where they keep all COVID cases after 10 days and after 10 days, they would just let me go on my own. The reason why I'm saying this, saying the Judo Federation is doing this is because they threw their hands up in the air and decided they don't want to have anything to do with it. And it's putting my life in real danger. I mean, that's just awful. And I want to I want to uh, speak to the follow up story related to the USA Judo before I, I go on my rant here. But but here it goes. Uh, L.A. Smith had a second update a couple of days later. He says. Hello, everybody. Uh, today's update, I'll be here until November 1st. I just want to thank Keith Bryant, CEO of USA Judo, Ed Liddy, Director of Athletic Athlete High Performance, and Lauren uh, Rosma, High Performance Manager at USA Judo, for all of the letters, written, phone calls, and most importantly, willing to offer the pay for my second and third test to get me the hell out of here, but seem to fall on deaf ears. I also want to thank Johnny Prado for checking in on me and doing what he could do and leaving the extra snacks. It's that type of combined effort that makes America great, working together to help one another. I'm just trying to keep myself safe and healthy and will continue to train under my quarantine situation. And I just think that is wonderful. I mean, that is the kind of thing that I would certainly hope in years past USA Judo would have done. But that's really stepping up to the plate and, and meeting one of their athletes and needs. And and again, just, just like refunding the club fees, they didn't have to do this. You know, people at USA Judo could just throw up their hands and say, well, you you know, these are the risks when you travel internationally to go to a, to a judo, judo tournament. But you, you know what? Instead of doing that, they did the right thing here. And they really stepped up. So so big kudos to them. I'm not sure if I should clap in the microphone. But I'm clapping right here. Because I think that's a great, great thing that they did. Now, going on to my rant about COVID. So, I am feeling... I, I think... Okay, here it is. If you are an athlete. And you are an administrator. Some kind of leader in a sports organization. Whether that's the NFL... Major League Baseball, the NBA, the you know National Hockey League, and you know for for all of you that care about this, you know for well for all of you the the sport you care about is judo, the International Judo Federation. I think these COVID guidelines to try and hold these tournaments is is patently absurd, and it's 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 time to give up the the charade. And 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 just live your life if you're going to be an athlete competing on an international circuit or competing in the NBA or the NFL. Just just stop with the mass. It's 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 silly. I mean for all intents and purposes, what the International Judo Federation and all of these other sports leagues have done is created a bubble of sorts. Everybody that is associated with international judo when they go to this tournament they've been tested for covid several times 
they are specifically shuttled to and from uh, the hotel to the arena and back and forth. They're probably wearing masks on the bus. They're probably wearing masks in, in, in the hotels until they get to their hotel rooms and stuff. I mean, my God, it's it's time to let this go. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't wear masks. But I really believe that if you're going to be an athlete and if you're a coach and if you're if you're the president of the International Judo Federation, you're you're in this bubble of sorts. And and there is no need for for this kind of for for appearances because you're not protecting yourself. You're not protecting anybody else, honestly. And, you know, the ridiculousness got elevated to a level that I would have never expected to see uh, at at a judo, judo tournament. So tall flicker. Of Israel uh, had a match against uh, Sergio Olianic of Por- of Portugal, and, and by the way, Tal Flicker did not have a good day today. He's he's certainly one of the best in the under sixty six kilo division, but he had uh, uh, he had one win and, and and one loss. But in his win against uh, Olianic of of Portugal, at the end of the contest, they go to shake each other's hands. And the referee stops them, and they and and both athlete athletes stop uh, short of shaking each other's hand because of concerns about COVID. Now I know other athletes on the mat did not um, it, it, it did not stop themselves from shaking hands and congratulating their opponent for a win. But my goodness, I mean, is this where we're at? Where you know you're you're sweating in each other's mouths for for four minutes plus. And you're 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 grappling. You're as close as you can almost possibly be to another human being, and yet at the end of the tournament, you you, you or at the end of the contest, you can't shake the other guy's hand because you're worried about COVID. I mean, are you kidding me? I, I mean, this is this is just getting over the top ridiculous. When I was watching uh, the World Series, uh, which my Rays lost, unfortunately, due to the worst uh, managerial decision I've seen in quite some time. I mean, the post-game interviews and, and the social distancing while conducting those post-game interviews are ridiculous. Like, like I'm seeing like Aaron Andrews, I think it's Aaron Andrews, trying to talk to a, a, a player on the race, you know, standing about 12 feet away from the guy, speaking into a microphone, and, and her voice is ringing throughout an empty baseball stadium. The reverb, the reverb is horrible, and the players can't understand a damn word she's saying. You know, and, and then in the NFL, you know, the players are breathing and sweating on each other, tackling each other, yet the coaches on the sidelines, they have to wear a mask. Or, or in, you know, uh, Andy Reid's case, the, the head coach of Kansas City, uh, he's wearing a face shield, which fogs up on him every five minutes. I mean, it's just, this is just over-the-top ridiculousness. And I'm again, I'm not saying don't wear a mask when you're in public. Don't socially distance. I'm not saying that. Though, you know, quite frankly, at this point, we all know that the, the, the virus is airborne. So, I mean, my goodness, when you go out to dinner, what, what, what's the point of putting on the mask when you walk through the door only to sit down and, and, and take the mask off while you eat and drink? I, I mean, there's so many people out there that are asymptomatic. Who knows how many people are in that room, you know, with COVID and they're all breathing around. And you know what? Most of us, we're not dying. And again, just to be clear, I'm not saying that I don't take COVID seriously, but I, I think people need to get to the point 
where we recognize and understand that COVID is just going to be one more thing in our life that can kill us at any given day, at any given moment, just like about a thousand plus other things on it. You know, right now I'm sitting behind this microphone. Maybe I touch this microphone by accident and I get this electronic shock and I die. Or or maybe my, my dog that's just sitting right next to me, um, just sitting there all comfortably, maybe he snaps, goes for my juggler and I die. I mean, there's so many things that can happen on any given day. COVID is just another one. And people all over the world are dying, you know, or have died. The United States has it really badly, but but Europe is experiencing a second wave. And, and you, you just, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting political. It's just, it's when it comes to sports, the way they are handling COVID is ridiculous. Either... Don't run your tournaments or just dispense with the with the with the phony optics that you're putting on because nobody's fooled by this. Nobody thinks that when you're out there and you're competing in whatever sport you're competing in, that you're safe from COVID. So so why put the masks on afterwards? It, it just makes no sense. Now, I'm sure there's other COVID related stories regarding this tournament that I might I may have missed, but two quick things before I get to the results of the Grand Slam in Hungary, it turns out that Lucas uh, Kripalik tested positive for COVID. And what I thought was really interesting, uh, Daria Bilodid, who is the world champion in the under 48 kilo division, in this tournament she fought in the under 52 kilo division. And she did not win, but she did get bronze. She was not pleased with that. It was very evident uh, after she stepped off the tatami. But the reason why she had stopped with uh, or I'm sorry, the reason why she had jumped up in weight was because of COVID concerns. She didn't feel like you know, with such the long layoff and not being able to maintain the same kind of training regimen that she's maintained, that trying to hit under 48 kilos for her would have been a very difficult task. And it makes sense. I mean, she's so tall. I, I mean, she may even be taller than me. I'm not very tall, but I mean, she looks like she's five foot ten out there, and to be only uh. You know, right at 48 kilos, that that's a pretty lean body. And I just, you know, according to her, she just wasn't really able to keep up the kind of training regimen that uh, she needed to stay at that weight. Now, she's made it known that she is going to continue to fight at under 48 kilo. But for this tournament, uh, she's she decided to move up and wait to under 52 kilos, which is fine. I mean, it's not like she's not going to the Olympics. She's probably going to go. Well, I know she's going to go if they have it. And if she goes, she's probably going to win it. So from my perspective, for her anyway, this was a nice tune-up match uh, moving up in division just to give it a chance. And she and she was still successful. And I do think that as she gets older, I think under 52 kilos are gonna is going to be her natural fighting division. And I do believe that she can dominate uh, that division. And I do believe that she can hang with Uta Abe. Now, with regards to the actual results of the Grand Slam in Budapest, I mean Hungary, I'm going to do my normal thing and talk about uh, really the medal winners in each division. I'll try and go through them quickly. Full disclosure, I really only saw, I believe it was either day one or day two of some of the finals. I mean, I, I think I mentioned it in the last episode of my podcast that I was going to be on vacation in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, by the time the 
uh, Grand Slam in Hungary rolled around. So I thought my time would be limited in watching it. And indeed it was because I was just too busy looking at the Smoky Mountains and trying to avoid bears. And that's not a joke. And walking around, enjoying nature and enjoying the city. So kicking things off, in the under 48 kilo division, you had Distria Krasnicki of Kosovo defeating Paula uh, Pareto of Argentina. Krasnicki ends up getting an Osotogari 10 seconds into the match and she manages to hold on to that that uh, Wazari lead uh, for the entirety of the match and she defeated Pareto who earned a silver, obviously. The bronze medal winners are, oh boy, here we go. Naran Satseg Ganbatar of Mongolia defeated uh, Shirishoni of Israel. Now, guys, my uh, people, mind you, that uh, it's been a while since I've pronounced some of these names, so I may be out of practice, so please bear with me. Uh, Ganbatar defeated, uh, like I said, Rishoni, and in the other bronze medal match, you have Andrea Stojdanov of Serbia defeating uh, Shirin Bukli of France. So, so uh, Stojanidov ends up winning by Wazari Awaseti Ipon, and in both attacks, she does uh, Sutemi Waza, actually. I, at least in my opinion, the first one, I'm not even sure what to call that. Some people will say Seinagi, but I completely disagree with that. In the second attack, it almost looked like Ukiwaza, and I'm sure some people will call that Drop Kosoto Gari or something like that. Continuing on to the under 60 kilo division, you had an all-Russian final. Or what I like to call the loser goes to Siberia match. And it involved Yago Abuzalde of Russia, like I just said, uh, fighting his countryman Robert uh, Mishvidobadze. Robert is not a common Russian name, is it? I don't I don't think it is. Anyway, moving on. Abuladze ends up winning this match with a Sumigaeshi, if you can believe that. For Wazari, he he manages to hit that at, at, with about a minute left to go in the contest, and he manages to hold on to that Wazari lead for the win. In the bronze medal match, you have Unubold, oh boy, Lechavaxjams of Mongolia, uh, losing to Luka Mekedzi of France. And in the, in the other bronze medal match, you have uh, Rodrigo Costa Lopez of Portugal defeating David Naji of Hungary, the hometown hero there. And I think like four people clapped because that was all in view uh, pretty much in the background at that time. Moving on to the under 52 kilo division, you had Amadine Bouchard of France defeating Fabienne Kocher uh, of Switzerland. Now Kocher, or, or maybe Kocher, uh, attacked... Uh, Bouchard and she ended up falling you know flat on her stomach tried to defend herself and basically Bouchard took it to her in the waza the referee gave her time to work and Bouchard turned her over with one of my favorite it's actually my go-to turnover and ended up with the Kamishiugatami and held her down for the Ipon so well done love that in the one bronze medal match, you have uh, Daria Bilodid of the Ukraine I mentioned this earlier that she moved up in weight defeating Eveline to shop of Switzerland. I got to tell you what, I mean, Bila did one pretty easily in my opinion, uh, but she was really disgusted with herself and I'm sure she fully expected and wanted to be in that gold medal contest. But look, first time to fighting in this weight division, you know, post pan, well, not really post pandemic, but you know what I mean? Uh, the first, the first uh, IJF world tour event since the pandemic happened. And I thought she did well. She shouldn't, she shouldn't hang her head on that, but, you know, 
Great champions uh, hold themselves to the highest standards, so it's no surprise that she was disgusted with herself. And the and the other bronze medal contest, you have Amber Riol of Belgium defeating or actually losing to Andrea uh, Chitu of Romania. Now moving on to the under sixty six kilo final, which was another loser goes to Siberia match, as you have Abdullah Abdul uh, Zaliov of Russia defeating Yakub Shmaliov of Russia. Now Abdul Abdul Zaliov ends up defeating uh, Shamilov of Russia via Osaikomi again. And what was really interesting to me in this match is Shamilov ended up going with like it looked like a double sleeve kataguruma, if you want to call it that. He fails at the technique, ends up getting half guard, and has Abdul Zaliov in half guard flat on his back. Now, for you people out there who do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you guys know it's a big no-no to be in half guard and flat on your back. You're you're kind of toast there if you're not moving. And that's all she wrote because it was only a matter of time until Abdul Zaliov ended up passing that half guard and ends up holding his opponent down with Tate Shiogatame. So congrats to Abdul Zaliov and and as for uh, Shamilov, well, best of luck to you in Siberia. For the bronze medal winners, you have William Lima of Brazil defeating, uh, oh boy, here we go again, Erkembayar Batogort of Mongolia. And in the other bronze medal contest, you have Orkhan uh, Safarov of Azerbaijan defeating Sardor uh, Nurialev of Uzbekistan. In the under 57 kilo division, you have Jessica Klimkate of Canada defeating Helene uh, Resevo of France. That's a that's a quality win right there. She ends up defeating uh, Resevo with a double sleeve Sayoya Toshi. And finishes for Wazari, and she finishes the match uh, holding her down for the Wazari Awaseti Ipon. Very impressive win there. In the one bronze medal match, you had Hedvig uh, Karakas of Hungary defeating uh, Sane Verhagen of the Netherlands. And in the other bronze medal match, you had uh, Tina Nelson Levy of Israel defeating Telma Montiero of Portugal. In the under 73 kilo division, you have Rustam Orzhov of Azerbaijan. Uh, defeating Nils Stump of Switzerland. Boy, I love watching as of of I love watching Orzhov fight, and this match was no exception. Orzhov ends up getting a Ochigari right from the get go, and it had to go to a video review just to score to Wazari. Now, for me, I hate it when athletes use their head to try and avoid throws, and I thought in this case that's exactly what Stump was doing here, and he should have been disqualified in my opinion. But I'm not the referee. I don't get paid. Well, neither do they apparently, <laughs> at least from what i am heard. So Orzhov ends up getting the Wazari there. And with about 30 seconds left to go in the match, Orzhov ends up getting a Sumigayeshi uh, on his opponent. His opponent had managed to get a Wazari score earlier in the match, but uh, that does it. He wins via Ipon. Now in the bronze medal match, you had... Uh, Petru Pelavan of Moldova defeating Tommy Macias of Sweden. And in the other bronze medal match, you had uh, Arthur Margelidion of Canada defeating Musa uh, Malgushkov of Russia. And I can't remember if I said it before, but Russia had a heck of a day today. In the under 63 kilo division, you have Tina Terstenyak of Slovenia defeating Enrique Barrios of Venezuela with a with a pretty nifty Osaikomi. 
Barrios failed in her attack, ended up pulling half guard. Again, was was kind of flailing about, never really controlled that. It was it was difficult for her to do so, but she couldn't hold on, and Tustin Yak ended up getting out of that half guard and held her down. You know, for the Ipon. In the one bronze medal match, you have Daria Davidova of Russia defeating uh, Caitlin uh, Quadros of Brazil. And in the other bronze medal match, you have the hometown hero, uh, Sosi Osbras of Hungary, defeating Catherine Bushmin uh, Pinard of Canada. In the under 81 kilo division, you have uh, Vedat Albarak of Turkey, defeating Antoine Valois Fortier of Canada. Alberak ended up winning with like a Kosoto Gari. He, he scored for a Wazari and then held down his opponent for the Wazari Awaseti Ipon. Very lively match and very impressive victory. Now in the one bronze medal match, you had Nicholas uh, Chilard of France defeating Kazan Kamozaev of Russia. And in the other bronze medal match, t- featuring two of my favorite uh, judoka to watch on the world tour, you have Frank DeWitt. Losing to Saeed Molai. It's good to see Molai back in action. I know it's not the first time he's been back in action since he's moved on to representing Mongolia. Molai ends up winning with Sasai Surikomi Ashi and certainly one of the best ones that I've seen on the tour in quite some time. And Frank Drewitt's a good sport. He recognizes he got caught pretty good. And again, this was another match where the referee, they were about to shake their hands and the referee pointed to at them to, to back away. Again... If you're sweating in each other's faces, I'm not sure why you need the optics at this point. I think it's ridiculous. In the under 70 kilo division, you have Barbara Matic of Croatia defeating Margot Pinot of France. Matic uh, wins this match with a Harai Makikomi for a Wazari. Probably, uh, not probably, I know, within uh, with 120, uh, 132 excuse me, to left to go in the match. And she manages to hold on to the victory. In the one bronze medal match, you have Barbara Timo defeating uh, Barbara Timo of Portugal defeating Maria Perez of Puerto Rico. It's always good to see a Boricua uh, within the top seven. And in the other bronze medal contest, you have Mich- uh, Michaela uh, Polers of Austria defeating Marie Yves Gahi of France. Now, in the under 90 kilo division, you have Mikhail Ilgolnikov of Russia uh, defeating. Uh, Atlan Banga Gatulga of Mongolia with an impressive uh, Ipon just 19 seconds into the contest. Igonakov ends up hooking his leg in there as if he's going to try to do Ouchigari and kind of gets stuck there. They're both kind of stuck and he just powers his way through with an Uchimata going the other direction. Really impressive stuff and, and like I said within 19 seconds of the contest. Now, in the one bronze medal contest, you have uh, Nicole Chereza Deshvili of Spain defeating Marcus Nyman of Sweden. And in the other bronze medal contest, you have uh, Mamadali Mediev of Azerbaijan defeating Noel Van to end of the Netherlands. In the under 78 kilo division, it was an all French final featuring Audrey Tremeo, who defeated her teammate Fanny Estelle Posvite. Jermeo ends up winning this about uh, 27 seconds into golden score with a technique that I don't even know should have even been scored. I, I, I think that's a bad call. And if she was being honest, I'm sure Audrey Jermeo would agree with me because as she stepped off the mat, 
She didn't even realize that she won. She had no idea what happened. She she bowed off the mat. Of course, the referee prevented her from shaking her opponent's hand. And it was probably 10 seconds off the mat when she realized she won. And then her, her expression changed. She was all happy and everything. So really weird way to end the contest. And it's unfortunate. But these things happen from time to time. Now, in the one bronze medal contest, you have Loriana Kuka of Kosovo defeating Antonina Shemilva, I'm sorry, of Russia. And in the other bronze medal contest, you have Alexandra Babinstiva of Russia defeating Natasha Ushma of the Netherlands. In the under 100 kilo division, you had another loser goes to Siberia match that featured Niaz Ilyasov of Russia uh, defeating his countryman Arman Adamian. The match really ends in a very unique way and in a spectacular finish, in my opinion, where Ilyasov goes for a Yoko Sutemi Waza type technique. A lot of people would call it Katagaruma these days. And they end up getting hooked in in this weird way because he wasn't able to finish the throw. And, and they're almost both trying to turn each over with the turn. The other person over with the same exact technique and Ilyasov ends up getting it. He rolls him onto his back and holds him down for the Osaikomi. Pretty impressive win. Really nice Nawaza action there. In the one bronze medal match, you have Shady El Nahas of Canada defeating Toma Nikiforov of Belgium. I gotta admit a small part of me wonders if he goes by by uh, Slim Shady. And in the other bronze medal match, you have Jorge Fonseca of Portugal defeating Alexandre Idir of France. In the plus 78 kilo division, you have Karya Sayet of Turkey defeating Nihel Cheek Ruhu of Tunisia. This match went into golden score with nobody scoring on either side. And it ends up, uh, Sayet ends up winning uh, via Shido, basically. Sheik Ruhu had uh, turned in for a a Seoyatoshi and she didn't get any rotation. She didn't make, uh, create any Kazushi. So they called her on her third Shido, uh, with that move in the one bronze medal contest. You had Maria, uh, Zulin Athelman of Brazil, defeating Rochelle Nunez of Portugal. And in the other bronze medal contest, you have Beatriz Souza of Brazil, defeating Larissa Serek of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And in the plus 100 kilo division, you have another loser goes to Siberia match where Inal Tasoev of Russia defeated his countryman Tamerlan Bashev. Bashev goes in for a Seo Yatoshi and fails. Tasoev uh, wraps him up, turns him over, and holds him down for the Osai Komi victory. So that will do it for the gra- uh, the review of the Grand Slam in Budapest, uh, Hungary. Excuse me. So it appears that next up on the IJF World Tour calendar, you have the Zagreb Grand Prix. And this is a contest that has not been confirmed yet. We already know that the Tokyo Grand Slam has been canceled, even though it was initially announced that it was going to happen. And right now, Zagreb is kind of up in the air. And according to the IJF calendar, they don't even have a date for it yet. They don't really even have much in the ways of an event information. Now, I have learned uh, via Judo Inside that Budapest, Hungary will also host the Judo World Championships uh, next year, and it's going to be a qualifier for the Olympic Games. So this will be really interesting because normally there is not a world championship in the same year as the Olympics. So 
unless I'm mistaken, for the 14 years that I've been involved with judo, this will be a first. I'm sure it's probably happened in the past, but probably not for many, many years. The Budapest World Championships were supposed to be held in 2022, but, you know, COVID happened and all that kind of stuff. I'm still not convinced with the way the world is currently reacting that there will be an Olympics. I, I just don't see it happening. The whole point of having an Olympics is is not for just for countries to compete against each other, but it's also for the optics, the the, the pizzazz, the showmanship, the, the money, the advertisers, all of it going involved. And I mean, honestly, what would a, an opening ceremony even look like with nobody in the stands? And I, I, I suppose... Given the amount of money that's probably on the table for this thing, they may go ahead and give it a go. But again, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I think athletes and federations, uh, all sports federations, need to get to the point where they just accept COVID as a life risk and you know, kind of get on with it without without these protocols and stuff. It's 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 already difficult to host a. A, a international tournament that the magnitude of the Olympics and and now to to have to make sure everybody's safe from COVID six feet apart and masks and all that stuff will sanitize your hands don't breathe in the same space I just I just don't see how that's feasible un, unless uh, everybody accepts that that getting COVID is a risk and they just move on as far as as promised I, I just I don't see it happening. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I would like to see an Olympics, but it's just not the same. I mean, I suppose the the the, the National Football League has done a decent job with it where with nobody in the stands, they the, the way they cut the camera angles, the way that they pump in the crowd, the fake crowd noise and things like that. It it makes for a pretty good television experience. And I suppose either way Japan is just going to lose a ton of money on this. So Maybe they just decide to heck with it and go on. Boy, you know what? We as as far as a raw recording, I'm about 49 minutes in. I'm sure with with the commercials and stuff, this will be much later on, um, a much later timestamp. But man, I really thought I was going to go close to two hours. I haven't even hit an hour, and I'm mostly done with my agenda for this episode. How about that? I, uh, I definitely do have a plan on having an after party. I wanted to talk about, you know, again, all this talk about COVID and stuff. I finally went back to my club for the first time uh, in six months. I, I did so a couple of weeks ago. This was before my trip to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And because of that trip, I am giving myself uh, a two-week solitude. I don't have COVID, but I'm for the sake of all of my training partners and for optics and all of that kind of stuff. I, I'm staying away once again for 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 two weeks since I returned, just to make sure, you know, everything is 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 good to go and healthy that I don't start spiking a fever or any, or anything like that. But I know months ago I said to myself that I've written off 2020. I'm going back and forth a little bit on this. And the reason being is is I'm keeping track of Hillsborough County's numbers and they're really not spiking. And, you know, I, I guess for me, I, I, I just wanted to get a better sense of where this country and this world is at with regards to COVID. I know there's a second wave in Europe and this country will probably hit a second wave 
And no matter who the president is, they're not going to fix anything. I mean, to me, it's just the virus. And that's what it is. It's the reality of there being a pandemic across the world. No other country uh, in the world that have had cases of COVID have had zero deaths. So my opinion and my position on this is not a political one. I want to make that clear. I, I've, I have always approached this and considered this from a personal liberty standpoint. And I know that's going to rankle some people, but that's, that's how I feel. And over these past six months, I have personally felt that I should probably stay away from the clubs and until I have a better handle, a better idea of what club cases look like and such. And here's the deal is apart from one issue, nobody else at my club that has well over 100 people have come down with COVID over the past six months. A few people have probably been exposed, but they all tested negative. And I think for me, it's about time I start trusting people, uh, the, the people that I train with and stuff. It's, it's time that I start trusting that those people outside of the club are doing the right thing. And if they're sick, they're going to stay home. And if they're, you know, and when they're out and about, that they're going to follow local guidelines. And I firmly believe that everybody in my club uh, is doing that. And I know my club has not been accepting new members. But for me, I, I at first months ago, you know, especially with the specter of my brother passing away on a ventilator from the flu, I had real serious concerns but I think for myself, I I will probably start making my way back to the club. I think I still may give it another month or at least certainly a couple of weeks to see where my local county is at in terms of new cases, in terms of new deaths. Which looking at my the local numbers, the thing spiked uh, in in like March and April. And then it's just, it looks like a bad stock. It's just going down and down and down. And of course, the local news media likes to pump it up when it, when a single day spike happens. But if you look at over the course of a six-month stretch, quite frankly, it looks like a bad stock that had its peak and is just tanking and continuing, continuing to tank. If you, if you want to have an idea of what that looks like on a chart in terms of COVID cases, that's what it looks like here. I came across a story yesterday regarding the European Judo Union. And before I get to that story, I'm sure maybe you all are noticing my voice sounds just a little bit different at the, uh, at this moment compared to some of the other segments in the podcast. As I've mentioned before, a lot of times I do a lot of recording segments and I piece it all together and then I give you this one big podcast. So this is happening after I did a lot of yelling and screaming, not so much screaming, but yelling after my dog who had kind of uh, ran out of the house and such. So calling for my dog has made my throat a little bit hoarse as of the recording of this particular segment. So this story came out on uh, October 31st, Halloween. Happy belated Halloween to all of you. And this is a message of the president, uh, on, and I read this on the European Judo Union's website. So for all of you international listeners out there, this one's for you. So the EJU president, who is uh, Mr. Sergei Solovechik, uh, delivered an important message to all national federations and their athletes concerning the Senior Euro European Judo Championships this year. 
The message goes, dear athletes, coaches, staff members, and EJU National Federations taking part at the Senior European Judo Championships in Prague. Despite the current situation in Europe and in particular the Czech Republic, which has resulted in a new wave of infection, the EJU Executive Committee has decided to hold the Senior European Judo Championships. We see the rationale for making such a responsible decision in the following factors. Firstly, the IOC announced that the Tokyo Olympic Games will be held in 2021, and we are obligated to prepare European athletes for their main event in life, which is impossible without participation in such a high-level competition. Secondly, we are guided by the brilliant example of the IJF and Hungarian Judo Association that hosted the Grand Slam in Budapest at a high level, including epidemiological safety measures. The EJU experts and task force team together with the Czech Judo Federation are ready to ensure the safety of the European Championship participants. Finally, the third factor of our confidence is solidarity and discipline of the European National Federations and the members of national teams. I believe that with awareness of their responsibility to their families and colleagues in sports, all of the participants of the European Championships will demonstrate their judo qualities, discipline, responsibility, honesty, mutual assistance, courage, respect for others, and unity. I wish to everyone and victories... I'm sorry, I wish health to everyone and victories at the European Championship. So I think that's a really bit of a good news. Again, I've mentioned this before. There's going to have to come a point where one, you know, again, we, we accept the fact that COVID is a reality. It's never going away and we just move on with our lives. And two, now that we know what the safety measures are in place, ideally, People can make their own choices to participate and and make their own choices to trust other people that they are also doing the right things. So I think it's a great thing that the European Judo Championships are going to be held. This is not a, an event I typically cover. But with so many uh, major events having been canceled over the past uh, seven or eight months, I, I, I think I will probably cover this somewhat uh, in my next episode. Hopefully... There will be some kind of a live stream. I think there has been in years past, and I've I've caught matches here and there. So yeah, so I, I mean I think this is great, especially if people really believe there's going to be an Olympics, which I, I'm still not convinced yet. So we'll see either way. But for all of my international listeners, my friends, there you go. I covered something that was not related to judo in the United States. Enjoy. So before I uh, wrap up this hideous episode, I, there's a couple of podcast-related stuff that I wanted to kind of cover in closing. First things first, I was listening to, again, the um, Tatami Talk podcast, and Juan had mentioned something about the interview that I had done with Ajax Tadahara and that he had been hearing uh, some people saying that he's bitter and such, and let me get this out of the way. If you're the kind of guy or person, whoever you are, whoever those people are, that can listen to that interview, and the one thing that you come away with is that he's bitter, then you're part of the problem. And you're part of the reason why people like Jimmy Pedro and Travis Stevens are creating an American judo system. And just like Jimmy Pedro had said in that interview on judoinside.com, the, the world of judo is, is a professional sports league and 
generally speaking, as as a whole, I do agree with the fact that this country has a a recreational approach to trying to get athletes on the medal podium. Now, I'm not being critical of any coach who puts in the effort to volunteer, uh, give of their time, help their athletes succeed, uh, you know, nationally and locally and even internationally and stuff. Like, I'm not, I'm not putting down coaches. I, I, I want to make that perfectly clear. I, I guess the thing that I, that really bothers me to hear is is that the first response for some people is that Ajax is bitter about his career. And that that simply wasn't the that that was not the impression that I got after as I was doing the interview. And, and I'm not saying that just because I hosted him. And when I say that you're part of the problem, I'm not necessarily talking about the individual. I'm just talking about the overall attitudes of people of, of some people that are out there that I, I that I think is pervasive, or I should say at least pervasive enough to potentially hold people back potentially. So now that I have that out of the way, I want to, gosh, I don't know if I should let the cat out of the bag just yet. Um, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. Look, for, for my foreign listeners out there, if you made it this far, God bless you. I know I talk a lot about judo in the United States and stuff, but I want you all to be aware that I still, I, I always have and will continue to greatly appreciate the fact that you all listen, even though that this is... Uh, Lately, it seems a lot of the time very U.S. centric, but I still hope I'm providing enough content that's interesting, informative, and and sometimes entertaining to you all. So with all that being said, I am planning on hopefully having two individuals come on to the podcast at at separate episodes, uh, two different people unrelated to each other. Uh, one to discuss the American judo development model. I, I think some, some people think that I am against this thing or, or maybe I'm putting it down a little bit. I hope that's not the case. I hope there isn't that belief. Uh, I, cause I was reached out by, by an individual who wanted to, to, to discuss this on the show. And I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm totally cool with that. I, I just, sometimes I feel like, there's an impression out there that I'm constantly negative about judo in this country, and it's it's not that. It's not that at all. And as I mentioned earlier, there's been many times over the history of this podcast where I have talked up uh, USA Judo, but like, like in all aspects of life, people tend to remember uh, the negatives. And I am also angling to have another guest who was a 2004 Olympian, a four-time national champion, currently a judo rokudan, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, an entrepreneur, uh, a published author, motivational speaker, and he has experience in MMA with a 5-0 and record. I don't want to jinx it, though. I don't want to say this person's name out loud in case it just falls apart. But I just wanted to give you guys a teaser that I'm currently working on an interview Um or I should say those interviews. And you know what? If those interviews end up flaming out, I can always talk about my, my uh, I don't know, training experiences and what I'm working on and what I think of leg grabs in judo and who I think the prettiest girl on the IJF World Tour is. I'm sure I'll fill it. I'll, I'll fill the next episodes with something. All right, so that's, uh, that's going to be about it for me. I'm definitely going to have an after party where I'm going to talk about my Tampa Bay Rays, among other things. 
Uh, but until I get there, um, I hope you all have a great day. I hope you all have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Open Gangnam Style. All right, so the after party. I said right toward the tail end of the regular podcast that I was going to talk about the Tampa Bay Rays. And let me tell you, it was so disappointing to hear the Rays lose on radio because I was I was driving home on my way uh, back from Gatlinburg, Tennessee on my vacation, which was excellent. And so here's the thing for, for those of you that don't really follow baseball or, or maybe once did. I used to be a baseball fanatic. I used to be a huge fan of the sport. And I I still am a fan of the sport, but not quite the same as I used to be. Quite frankly, because of the Tampa Bay Rays. And it's not because they were terrible for, um, you know, between 99 and, and, you know, 2007, they were terrible. But in 2008, they made their first World Series appearance with Joe Madden as their skipper. And they lost the World Series. But the thing with the Rays back then is they started doing different strategies. They really involved the math of baseball and odds and percentages in their decision making. And quite frankly, ever since 2008, the the Tampa Bay Rays, which if you guys don't know, I live in the Tampa Bay area. So they're my home team for baseball. You know, the Rays have found a winning formula to evaluate certain players, make certain managerial decisions in certain key situations, and it's proved to be successful. However, the problem with the Rays and what they call locally here the Rays way is that I feel it relies too much on analytics. And not only does it rely too much on analytics, really the game has changed from the fans and the announcers' point of view. I could not care less about launch angles and exit velocities. If you, as an announcer, are talking about launch angles and exit velocities on a television broadcast, you've lost me as a viewer. I, I, I don't care. And I know people out there care, but, but many more people don't care about that stuff. But So the Tampa Bay Rays have, have like I said, have a way of doing thing, the Rays way that works, but they stick to that no matter what. And in this World Series for Game 6, they stuck with that Rays way mentality instead of letting Blake Snell try and finish the fifth inning when Snell was dealing. I mean, Snell had a one nothing lead and the Dodgers couldn't hit him. They, 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 one of their players got on base from a base hit it was one of the, I think the only one that he gave up. Now, he didn't have a no-hitter going into the fifth, but it was only the second hit, I believe. And because the odds and percentages show that Blake Snell does worse 
uh, when batters see him a third time around, they the manager decides to yank him, and and that was just the wrong move. And and the thing is, what it shows me, if you s- just stick with the math in every single situation, you're you're not accounting for potential outliers, and you're not accounting for the human element of the game. Which the fact of the matter is, is that at that moment, the he was in control of the Dodgers lineup, and and to me, it's like. It's very similar to Texas Hold'em poker. I'm actually a very good Texas Hold'em poker player. Um, and, and a large reason why is because I stick with the math. I understand the math. I understand the odds of me hitting certain cards on certain, uh, you know, on the turn, on the river. Like, I know the odds of when my card is supposed to hit. I understand playing the pot odds. I understand what is a good bet versus a bad bet. You know, I understand how to freeze people out of pots. Uh, so that they're forced into making a, a a very bad bet. So I understand all of that. However, poker, much similar to baseball, is also a game with a human element. And sometimes when I've got control of a table, and look, I'm not I'm not World Series of Poker good, but I'm I am a good player. And when I've got control of a table, a lot of times it doesn't even matter what two cards I have in the hole. It doesn't matter. I, I could be playing two five offsuit to, to somebody's pocket nines. And I, I sometimes when I know that I've got somebody, I'll, I'll bet those cards as, as if I've got pocket aces and get other people to fold. The point is, is that it's a people game. And in this situation with the race, they played the odds irregardless of the fact that Blake Snell was dealing at that moment. So Kevin Cash pulls Blake Snell. He puts in Nick Anderson, and the guy collapses. the the uh, The Dodgers ended up uh, getting a couple of runs, and there's the World Series for you. So I'm still pretty miffed about that. Nearly a week later, but I had to get that off my chest because the Rays way, even though it produces wins, and I do enjoy baseball it really has killed my passion for baseball and and all of these analytics and sabermetric stuff and the guys and the geeks you you know you know that that put together you know which lineups are are ideal and and things like that without accounting for the human element they've killed my passion for the game it's 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 not it's it's not as fun watching baseball as it used to be. I, I mean, you know, put it in perspective, for example, every perfect game or every no hitter has defied the odds and and according to metrics was the wrong decision to let that guy go, you know, nine plus innings. Or or for example, in the nineteen eighty eight World Series when Tommy Lasorda uh put in put in Kirk Gibson you know, the analytics and the sabermetrics guys would, would probably have lost their minds if, if Lasorda makes that call back in 88. But you know what? He was the right call because it worked out. So, yeah, so that's my rant on baseball. I want to go on to other more uh, entertaining things like the Mandalorian. That is back. And unlike baseball, which has killed my passion for baseball... The Mandalorian has restored my love of the Star Wars universe. And listen, I, I I have always made it clear that I am not a Star Wars hater. There's a lot of people out there that's a Star Wars hater. They just like to hate on George Lucas and, and, and the entire Star Wars franchise just because it's not... I, I don't know. Sometimes I think for some of those people, it's, it's, uh, it's in vogue to be critical of the Star Wars universe. But for me... 
I really disliked uh, episodes eight and nine of the movies. I, I I I hated them, quite frankly. I thought they were poorly done movies. I mean, the special effects were great, sure, but in terms of an actual Star Wars movie and and the Star Wars universe, I just thought it was. I I didn't think they were well done. However, The Mandalorian has kind of flipped all of that upside down for me and, and and now I'm starting to really appreciate that universe again and you know I saw some criticisms of people out there saying oh the Mandalorian season two episode one was so predictable and blah 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 well listen dorks every story in the history of the world has been written I mean, the, there isn't anything brand new that can be done. It's just a new spin on things. So how they do that spin is what matters. I mean, come on. Did, did you expect the Mandalorian to die? I mean, what, what other spin would you would you have in that episode? So I thought it was fantastic. I'm not going to give it away, obviously. But what Disney and, and John Favreau have managed to do with this episode is that they've made the Star Wars universe look like a dangerous place to live all over again. And that, and I think for me that's what makes it special. And that's what made the Star Wars universe special. And not only that, it's the the dialogue and the frames of reference that characters talk about in that universe, they don't go on trying to explain it. They just talk about it. It's like like in like in episode 4 when when Princess Leia called the Han Solo, a scruffy-looking nerf herder. Well, what's a nerf herder? And for for that matter, what's a nerf? So, it's little things like that that made the Star Wars universe unique. They had their own language, their own problems, and things like that. And I thought I think the Mandalorian brings it back to something a lot more similar to that. And I love it. I, I I'm really digging the show. It's not perfect. But it's a lot better. It's an improvement over what we've seen in the movies over the past, what, 10 years maybe? Though I've gone on record saying that I liked Solo and and I loved Rogue One. I think I've said that before. 